1: Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
2: Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off.
3: We're going to talk all about the policy prescriptions of the Biden administration. We're not going to hear any more about Operation Warp Speed. They're going to be calling it the COVID response. We're talking right now about 2024 jockeying amongst Republicans.
2: Bloomberg, sound off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights.
4: Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think
5: Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors?
4: Infrastructure has
5: always been bipartisan.
2: Bloomberg, sound off. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio.
3: We're talking infrastructure. Plus, we've got an exclusive interview with the former head of the International Space Station. We're talking about the space race and how does it impact countries here on Earth. We've got a lot to get through and an all-star policy panel, plus the latest on infrastructure, as well as what's been going on with McConnell now decrying corporate politicking that he once championed. First, though, let's get a... Market check from Charlie
2: Pellett. Hi, right. thank you very much. Happy Tuesday. Great show ahead. Do want to begin with a headline from the Bloomberg Professional Service. Brazil surpassing 4,000 daily COVID-19 deaths for the first time ever. It was a down day on Wall Street. Stocks did spend a lot of the day in the green, but uh, late day fade here. Final hours where things begin to deteriorate. S&P down four. Drop there of one-tenth of one percent. The Dow down 97. A drop of three-tenths of one percent. NASDAQ lower by seven. A drop today of just about one-tenth of 1%. Stocks, by the way, fell in the slowest trading day of 2021 after a rally that drove the equity market to all-time highs yesterday. Volume on U.S. exchanges slipped below 10 billion shares for the first time this year. Tech companies led losses in the S&P. Today, we had the NASDAQ 100 index falling one-tenth of one percent. Ten-year yield, 1.65 percent. Gold, little change now, down at uh, 17.43 the ounce. West Texas Intermediate Crude up 1.2 percent, 59.33 a barrel. Again, recapping equities lower S&P down four, drop there of one-tenth of one percent. We're talking infrastructure. I'm Charlie Pellet. That, Kevin, is a Bloomberg Business Flash.
3: Thank you very much, Charlie Pellet. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief. Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We're accompanied by the all-star Bloomberg Politics Policy Team. Rick Davis is with us, a Bloomberg Politics contributor, and Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist, longtime President Obama aide and a principal of New Day Strategy. We begin tonight with the big story. And that is President Biden talking about vaccines. He visited a vaccine clinic in Alexandria, Virginia today, just across the river from Washington, D.C. He greeted healthcare workers and those waiting in line for shots. And the president urged vaccine recipients to spread the word to family and friends. Here's the sound on the shots from President Biden.
0: You're doing the right thing. It's really important. And when you go back, when you go home, get all your friends, tell them. Get a shot when they can. We're going to be able to do this. Everyone's going to be able to before the month is out. Every age.
3: It comes as a resurgent job market is creating more opportunities at a faster clip than many economists and employers had expected. What's more, according to my colleagues Michael Sasso and Leslie Patton on the Bloomberg Terminal, too few people are applying for positions that are reopening. And that's setting up a battle for talent. Restaurants and hotels are raging wages, offering bonuses for workers, referrals, or luring people from other states to cope with the shortage. Now, many data watchers have been caught off guard as improving weather, stimulus, and a surge in vaccinations converge to boost the economy. It all comes as President Biden's administration is pushing for a two and a quarter trillion dollar infrastructure package, which we are about to unpackage the new developments on. But first, let's take a listen to what White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki had to say about what she told reporters, the dialogue, how the dialogue's going with lawmakers on Capitol Hill.
1: Our focus is on engaging with Democrats and Republicans, with staff, with committee staff, inviting members to uh, the White House next week. And we are encouraged uh, by uh, some of the statements that have been made about components of the package where we could find agreement.
3: The first question for the panel, and we'll start with you, Rick, is this optimism in the economy, this resurgence in the reopening, whether or not that undercuts President Biden's leverage, not beyond the trillion dollars or so in his plan for infrastructure that Republicans agree with, but on all of the additional infrastructure projects in which they say is too much money.
5: Yeah, Kevin, I think it's exactly right. Um, Republicans already start with the attitude that uh, they want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. Then there's plenty to not like if you're a Republican and, um, It'll be interesting to see with all the machinations that are going on with how this will go through the budget and what uh, the parliamentarian is now allowed, uh, whether there's a sincere effort to try and get Republicans on this package. The White House has said that they're going to try to do that, uh, but it's going to come at a cost. And so are they willing to pay that cost?
4: Roger. Yeah, well, first off, um, Kevin, it's wonderful to be here and um, great to join Rick as well. I, I take no issue with his comments. Um, I think it's important um, that the Biden administration reach out um, both in an optic sense and and also in reality that it's that it's a sincere uh reaching across the aisle. But I think, you know, they don't have to look that far in their rearview mirror to see a time when basically all of Obama's outreach were was completely rebuffed. Um, And I think push comes to shove that that's probably where it's going to end up, right? Like you could you can just sense the GOP salivating over the idea of primarying someone that that throws um, Biden six or eight votes on something like this. So that said, it's still important that he reaches out because these things, they even if they end up being narrow, partisan vehicles, it's still important that the process is not narrow and partisan.
3: So, I mean, I find this fascinating, and I was talking about this earlier today with my friend, my mentor, Tom Keene, on Bloomberg surveillance, just in terms of the ruling that came down yesterday within the last 24 hours or so, in which the Senate parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough – did you see this, Rick? The yep. Senate parliamentarian ruled uh, that they're going to be able – that Democrats are going to be able to, to utilize another budget measure for more spending – uh, in this calendar year, they've already done two they are able to do additional uh, funds now, my takeaways from this, Rick, and jump in on in on here with your analysis is that number one, this takes some political pressure off of the president from having to to tear up the filibuster and to get rid of the filibuster because this is a step uh, towards compromise in the sense of it frees him up to accomplish some more of his legislative priorities but secondly is that this is by no means a sure thing and a rubber stamp for his two and a quarter trillion dollar infrastructure proposal simply because they're going to have to pay for it. And that's also what Elizabeth McDonough, the Senate parliamentarian, ruled. And so if you're going to have to pay for it, then that means that you're going to have to raise taxes. And when you've got Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat centrist from West Virginia, saying that he's really on the fence, putting it mildly, to raise taxes, Rick, that this this infrastructure two and a quarter trillion dollars is is still by no means getting rubber stamped by the Senate parliamentarium.
5: That's right. I, there's there's not a clear path to seeing uh, 50, 51 votes uh, for the entire package in the form it's in, especially when you see those uh, revenue raisers that the Biden administration uh, submitted, which were you know basically... Uh, eight years of spending, and it would take you 18 years to make up the revenue difference. And so that's just not going to get through that reconciliation agreement. And so uh, until you find spend fours, which, by the way, is how Congress used to be able to allocate money. Do you have, if you had spent a dollar, you had to raise a and, dollar. And, and there was a pretty good amount of fiscal discipline during that period of time. Uh, so maybe we return back to that a little bit. And, and frankly, I think everybody in Congress would look at that as productive.
3: And then, you know, just to dig deeper on, on what Senator Manchin, Roger Fisk, a longtime Democratic strategist and an ally of former President Barack Obama, what what he said to the local West Virginia reporters, W V Metro News, the talk line show earlier this week, he said, quote, as the bill exists today. It needs to be changed. This bill will not be in the same form you've seen it introduced, or see people talking about it. He said that he would not support raising the corporate tax rate from 21 percent to 28 percent, as Biden proposed to pay for increased infrastructure and social welfare spending. Roger, maybe he doesn't need to be meeting with the Republicans.
4: <laughs> I mean, maybe he's got to. Maybe
3: he's got to head down to Morgantown. <laughs>
4: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I speak to you from the People's Republic of West Virginia. I right
3: know you do. I didn't want to out um, your location. You know, I didn't know. I know we've got a lot of loyal sounds on listeners. But I, he is coming to us live from the Mountaineer State. Go ahead, Roger.
4: Absolutely. And I, I believe in that same interview, and you mentioned dig deeper, so let's dig a, a little bit deeper even still. Um, I believe he showed a little leg on a willingness to go to 25% though, on the corporate tax rate so if it's 21 now, Biden needs it to go to 28, you're talking about $2.2 trillion. Maybe then they say they, they ease back to 25%. That makes it $1.5 trillion or something. So when people say, this, this is audacious, why did, why did Biden start so, so big? Because of exactly these kind of factors, where you can dial it back, you can come off as reasonable, you can come off as you're completely on brand right, for Biden, um, still get most of it done. And 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 bring along a, a mansion who can turn around and then say, you know, I I kept it from going to twenty eight. and He can sell that here in West Virginia.
3: But 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 Rick, what I don't understand is that if there's a change in, in parties, that the the corporate tax rate would then just go right back down to twenty one percent. This is the crowning achievement for economic uh, Republicans that they that they point to, Rick. From the previous administration, I just I'm hard pressed to find uh, that 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 this corporate tax rate isn't going to be a a red line and that they aren't going to pressure Manchin even in a in a state that he's heavily popular in.
5: Oh, sure. There'll be plenty of political pressure put on Manchin and um, Manchin holds a lot of cards being that 50th vote. And so uh, and you're right. This has been uh, a bit of a debate over a long period of time. Uh, the corporate tax rate has been a bouncing ball. Administrations who have parties in power, uh, you know, try to lower it if they're a Republican and raise it if you're a Democrat. Uh, the problem is there's there's never been a really good bipartisan uh, tax bill, tax um, uh, restructuring in the last 30 years, and so it, it would have actually been kind of an interesting thing that before you started figuring out how to spend all the money, to actually have sat down and said, okay, what's our tax structure really supposed to look like? Uh, we know the Secretary of Treasury is out there trying to talk to the rest of the world about, you know, sort of a a baseline um, corporate. Uh, tax that uh, would take away the argument most Republicans have, which is we got to be competitive with the rest of the world, so we have to have this lower tax rate for corporations.
3: I thought our colleague David Fickling, who is a Bloomberg opinion columnist who covers commodities, and he's written for Bloomberg News, Dow Jones, The Wall Street Journal, The Financial Times, The Guardian. He's done the whole—he's run the whole gamut. Uh, but his, his uh, column is headlined, Yellen's tax plan is as big as Trump's trade war. Our targets are the big corporations that have offshored their uh, that have offshored their profits in places like Singapore, Ireland, the British Virgin Islands, and other jurisdictions that impose little to no levies. So already, David Fickling, our colleague, is uh, comparing Yellen's tax plan- tax plans to Trump's trade war. Much more coming up next. We talk taxes. We talk World War One. Little history for you. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg.
5: Stefan Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Sarilli on Bloomberg Radio.
3: My name is Kevin Sarrilli. I'm the Chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist. Uh, Roger, you're involved with this incredible new project that I, I wanted to ask you about because today is the World War One anniversary, and the World War One Memorial is getting unveiled in Washington D.C. on April 16th. What do you know about it? What can you tell us? What should we be expecting in ten days when that's unveiled?
4: First off, this is kind of you because you knew I was going to sneak in some World War One anyway, so we might as well just put uh, it right on the table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's bipartisan legislation the president signed in 2013, basically taking Pershing Park, which is at the southeast gates of the White House campus, already has a statue of General Pershing, who's in charge of the American Expeditionary Force in World War I, and then uh, empowered that commission to go off and conduct a the whole design process, 330 entries from 22 countries.
3: Wow. And then the winner
4: was a young man named Joe Weishar, who at the time was a 25-year-old unlicensed architecture student uh, in Arkansas. Wow. And then he had to work with the National Capital Planning Commission and a whole bunch of other bodies. And uh, so it's going to be unveiled on April 16th. It is, uh, it's an amazing bas-relief sculpture that uses life-size uh, bronze, sculptures, and it basically reads left to right uh, like a sentence and basically traces uh, one soldier's journey while at the same time making it kind of universal. But the larger points for your audience, since you know so much of our conversation here is kind of market-based, so many of our t- touch points in in our daily lives are driven by World War One. I. I mean, the, the U.S. was only involved for 18 months, but it's no... It's no simplification to say that we arrived in that war on horseback and we left on airplanes. The accelerant that World War One applied to American technology and manufacturing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really amazing. So I mean, 18 it, it's months. Up on April 16th.
3: Well, no, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. And I think it's such a smart point about 18 months. I mean, we've only been in the pandemic for, for 12 months now and, uh, already. I mean, the lasting impact that it's had uh, just to society globally has just been been remarkable. You know, I'm always a history nerd. My grandfather's a purple heart from World War, World War II. So uh, I definitely can't wait to check out that World War I memorial. Thanks for that important update. Switching gears now. Uh, did you see this? Rick Davis, I know you've been all over this. Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell now decrying Corporate politicking. This really ignited Washington and Wall Street's worlds today. Uh, Mitch McConnell is telling U.S. chief executives to stay out of politics in response to the corporate backlash against a new GOP Georgia voting law. A shift for the Senate Republican leader who has long encouraged corporate political activity in the form of donations. This is fascinating. Mitch McConnell joined other Republicans this week in criticizing corporations, including two Georgia-based companies, Delta Airlines and the Coca-Cola company, for objecting to the state's new election law that Democrats say restricts voting. Take a listen to the sound on what he told reporters earlier today from Mitch McConnell. Here he is.
2: I found it completely discouraging to find a bunch of corporate CEOs uh, getting in the middle of politics. My advice to the corporate CEOs of America is to stay out of politics. He went, Don't pick sides in these big fights.
3: He went on to call it quite stupid uh, that uh, several of these companies uh, have criticized Major League Baseball um, or I'm sorry, that, that Major League Baseball and other companies have criticized uh, Republicans for some of the policies that they are proposing in Georgia, for example. Uh, Major League Baseball had moved its all-star game from Georgia to Colorado in response to the law's passage. Rick Davis, I, I've been dying to ask you about this, and, and now Leader McConnell uh, has, has uh, entered into this debate as well. Uh, fascinating.
5: Well, uh, and Senator McConnell has done it in a way that um, probably has fundraisers jumping off the Woodrow Wilson Bridge right now, (laughs) you know, because it's always like, hey, we need that corporate money, bring it in for politics. But look you're quite stupid to get in the middle of a controversial issue corporations i mean like the 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 nanny uh version of mitch mcconnell came out today lecturing corporate ceos on what he thinks our social responsibility is and 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 by the way really tough signal to send to corporations right i mean here are a bunch of guys who have been sitting in their boardrooms uh sweating since january 6 where a lot of them said oh we're not going to give any more political money to any of these guys and then the next thing, you know, a uh, few of them break ranks and start donating again. And then this comes up, you know, and because they 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 are now more socially responsible than they've ever been, corporations are looking at this Atlanta law and saying, "Hey, we've gotta, we got to we got to say something about this. We can't ignore uh, the minority community and the outrage that they've had." So, I mean, it's a it's a tough message, but honestly, I think it's going to backfire because I mean, Mitch McConnell's talking about an America that existed 20 years ago, not today.
3: Do you think that there are some in the business community who would like to see uh, politics at the C-suite level depoliticized, if that makes sense? Current affairs of the day to not be impacted by the C-suite level? Or, Or
5: as you just mentioned, are
3: we just living in a completely different society now?
5: yeah i mean look politicians never want to listen to corporate ceos about their politics right i mean they just want their money shut up and turn out your vote uh and and so it's it's always this sort of unwritten rule right we'll cover you when it comes to legislation but you know you're going to cover us when it comes to finances and votes and and that was the agreement now we're actually seeing ceos getting active in social issues and that is causing a lot of anxiety for republicans
3: all right coming up we're heading to outer space we're off the woodrow wilson bridge we're heading to space. I'm Kevin Cerilli on a rocket ship. This is Bloomberg. My name is Kevin Cerilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Rick Davis is with me, Bloomberg Politics contributor. And we were talking about this yesterday, and I thought, let's head on up there into outer space. Uh, Because so much of the geopolitics and the emerging technologies and the innovation of tomorrow that we focus on uh, currently, the final frontier, space. And we alluded to this yesterday about the U.S.-China space race, for lack of better uh, words. Um, But I wanted to get a global... Uh, perspective and our producer Matt Shirley said, Well then we, we gotta get we've gotta get Chris Hadfield. And I said, You think he would come on the show? And he goes, Yeah, 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 we'll get Chris Hadfield. He's a Canadian retired astronaut. He is an engineer, the former commander of the International Space Station, the former Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot, and the first Canadian to walk in space. He flew not one, but two space shuttle missions. Chris, it's a privilege and a treat for me to be able to have this conversation with my colleague, Rick Davis. So let's just start geopolitically speaking. What is going on with Mars in, in, in the sense of what, what should we glean from the US and China's uh, sudden uh, space exploration and, and, and advancement of this new technologies and robotics as uh, we get to the Red Planet?
0: Well, thanks for that big buildup, Kevin. Uh, I'll try and live up to it. Um, and Rick, nice to, nice to chat with you also. Uh, so let's see, I think Mars is fundamentally interesting to uh, humanity, because it's the most probable other place we know of that there might be life, or there might have been life. And that's kind of a question, you know, since we've been had time to look up and wonder, are we alone or not? Uh, that's maybe the most probable place that we can get to where we can answer that question. Are we alone or not? And that that's what, you know, Perseverance is doing there right now, driving around in that river valley, that river delta, uh, digging up samples. And and it's what the Chinese orbiter is doing as well, you know, just trying to understand the planet. Plus, it's, it's kind of exciting and cool like was reflected in the tone of your voice in the opener there. And it's sort of, Uh, just sort of at the hairy edge of our of our technological capability so that's kind of an alluring combination you know we can just barely do it if we really push it and we might find out you know if if we're alone in the universe or not so i think that's the fundamental driver for it and lots of different countries are now getting to the technological level even in the united arab emirates you know to the point where they can put something in orbit around around mars
3: but you, you hear a lot in Washington, D.C. about the militarization of space, obviously the advancement of Space Force and protecting uh, the, uh, the the various technologies that are out there in space. From your perspective, Chris Hadfield, as someone who has uh, commanded the International Space Station, are we at the cusp of, uh, I don't want to say, you know, Star Trek, you know, and military operations in, in outer space, but I mean, countries do have to protect their 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 interests and their national security. How will that be applied to space?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and and of course, they SpaceX or I'm sorry, uh, Space Force was largely a renaming exercise. The, mm. the United States very very uh, properly has been concerned about their assets, including the ones in space, and and the U.S. Air Force and Space Command had the responsibility. For, for the security of those things for decades. And renaming it, that's fine. You know, uh, the U.S. Air Force wasn't around until it got renamed, even though people been flying. So all that's fine. Um, what the future is, it, it kind of depends on what it is you're trying to defend, j- just like anywhere. And Right now, um, almost all of the valuable assets are in orbit around the world. You know, the the big expensive satellites that have been put up there to give us television and communications and, and all the other things that would count on, GPS and all that. And, you know, it's not like we need you know someone up there being a security guard or something, but it's just a natural evolution when you have things of value. You need to find some way to protect them, just like human history has shown us on the surface of the Earth. Well, the real question, I think, Kevin, is... Um, when we start uh, staying on the moon for extended periods, which isn't very far away, um, you know, our technology is good enough now and we're building the rocket vehicles that can get us there. Um, whose laws are we going to be subject to? And we have the Outer Space Treaty that was signed in the late 60s um, in by, you know, all of the major space nations of the world, Soviet Union and the United States and everybody at the time. Um, but we it's not very specific and it's a little bit, uh, vague in its wording, and we need we need to develop all that. It's not like we can't. You know, we've done it for the law of the sea, we've done it for Antarctica, but we we need to think our way through that. But I think we also need to be deliberate into what we want our end game to be. Everyone needs to protect their valuables, but at the same time, we don't necessarily just have to repeat what we've done in the past and you know plant it somewhere else as if that's the only solution we could come up with.
5: Colonel Hatfield, uh, it's good to talk to you, and uh, and thanks for all your service to uh, to the world. Uh, it's really quite an amazing feat you've done uh, to have the service in space that you've had, and and I wanted to follow up with you because uh, this notion of the International Space Station, in my mind, was always one of the very few places on Earth that, or on Earth, uh, I- anywhere that <laughs> yeah. the U.S. and the Russians. And I mean, there are many others obviously involved, but the U.S. and the Russians were cooperating. And, and obviously, there's not a lot of cooperation on planet Earth with the U.S. and the Russians. And, and how does that play out in space? I mean, have you been on the station with Russian astronauts, cosmonauts, and, and, and is it really, we don't care what happens down below us, it's what's the mission up here that we care about?
0: Rick, I was uh, NASA's director of operations in Russia for a few years. I lived in Russia for about five years. And, and people forget, but uh, in the 80s, I, I was a fighter pilot in the Cold War, intercepting Soviet bombers that were practicing cruise missile launches on North America. You know, that's you. what my job was. I'd launch in an armed F-18 and blast off in the middle of the night to go just to the air identification zone and, and make sure that they weren't hostile today. And yet, in 1995, I flew on space shuttle Atlantis, to go help build the Russian space station. Near. Wow. And, and, and so we have been cooperating uh, 24-7 with the Russians ever since the early 90s. You know, when I, got, when I showed up at the NASA astronaut office, I, I I had to learn to speak Russian, you know. Let's uh, pick it
3: up and, right there after I, the jump, because I don't want to cut you off, but we're up against a heartbreak. But uh, much more coming up, so stick it right here, because we've got a lot to catch up on. Uh, I'm Kevin Trulli. This is Bloomberg.
5: Com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
2: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio.
3: I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. We've got an awesome guest, Chris Hadfield. Colonel Chris Hadfield, who is the former commander of the International Space Station. He's a retired astronaut. He's flown uh, not one, but two space shuttle missions. He's the author of this awesome new book called *The Apollo Myrtle*, *The Apollo Murders*. Cover not final. It is a novel by uh, Colonel Chris Hadfield. Uh, and again, it's called *The Apollo Murders*. He has also written uh, other best-selling books, including the New York Times bestseller *An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth* uh, and a children's book, which I highly recommend. If I do say so myself, called *The Darkest Dark*. And it talks about, uh, it's for children, beautifully illustrated, mind you. uh, And it talks about uh, facing one's fears and finding strength in one's dreams. It's an awesome book. But his new book, The Apollo Murders, uh, it's rooted, just if you know a little bit about the story, it's rooted in his own experiences, having uh, gone from uh, working for a the united states and and canada and traveling to russia and and really making sure that uh foreign adversaries and malign actors weren't wouldn't be uh negatively impacting uh the west uh and then going to work on the international space station which rick just told us is has always been the beacon the best representation of humanity working together tell us a little bit about your new book uh uh chris
0: yeah, and in addition to that list you just did there, Kevin, I, I piloted a Russian spaceship on my third space flight. I launched wow. the same launch bed as Yuri Gagarin and, and flew a Russian capsule up to the International Space Station and back. So, so yeah, it was really interesting to write the Apollo murders, uh, set in 1973. And, you know, there in, in Washington, all the stuff that was going on in the spring of 73 with, with the Watergate bringing Nixon down and, and, uh, the end of the Vietnam War and the The rise of of women's rights—all of that was interplaying right at the end of the race to the moon, but still the height of the Cold War. And so it was a really ripe moment to to build a story using all of those real characters and using this real Russian space station that was up at the time—that was a military space station that, that hardly anybody knows about. That that was armed; it had a huge machine gun on the outside, and. Um, wow. and then building a story, you know, including that and cosmonauts and astronauts and to the moon and, and some of the things of value on the moon and then coming back home again. Uh, it was uh, a delight to be able to write a story based in reality, but we have a really interesting thriller. Of a uh, of a fiction book, I think I think people are gonna are gonna like the book a lot. The early readers are ju- are just loving the book, which really makes me happy.
3: It comes out in October, and and it's 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 part of a the theme I think of what we're seeing. I mean, we had Admiral Stravitas on the other week, and he's got his new China book out, twenty thirty four, about uh, fictionalized but rooted in the sense of reality. Rick, it's really it's fascinating, and, and and it's a book that I can't wait to read, but I also can't wait to watch. I hope someone turns it into a movie or a. Mini series, go ahead, Rick. <laughs>
5: Yeah, no, Kevin, I mean, you know, we've spent so much time fictionalizing space. It's nice to have someone who's actually been there and
3: done that.
5: (laughs) And and, and yet I think so many of our memories are fictionalized, right? I mean, like you were just talking about having a machine gun in space. And I remember the scene in Armageddon where the guy pulls a gun out and he goes, you have a gun in space? As if that was something that was so unusual. Literally one of my (laughs) all-time
3: favorite movies. Sorry, this is me
5: dorking out on national global radio. How can we not dork out when we've got a true-to-life astronaut in our
3: midst? Okay, this is a fun fact about our guest, that he is the first person to ever film a space video, a music video, David Bowie's Space Odyssey. That must have been kind of fun.
0: It was, yeah. I'm I'm a musician as well, and actually I've been touring some with David Bowie's band since then, which has been a real delight. Uh, yeah, it's been getting to know Mike Garson and Earl Slick and the guys. So that's just been, cause they were like David Bowie's family. I, I only got to know, I never met him face to face, David Bowie, and he was in the last couple years of his life then, unfortunately. But, but he loved that version of the song that I did. And, and so it was a real treat for me to be able to record it in weightlessness with his wow. permission and then, and then have, gosh, hundreds of millions of people see that video all around the world. Maybe see Space Flight a little differently as a result.
3: I watched this great documentary over quarantine, uh, called the, the earth effects. I want to say it's called, and it's about what astronauts, when they come back to earth, how they, when you, f- when you see earth from outer space, your entire perspective changes, uh, just because yeah, the o- overview effect. the overview effect, that's, that's right. the name of it. And I, I'm, I'm a po- yeah, Thank you for yeah. correcting me because it, it is such a great documentary. It's available online. Um, but I wanted to ask you about that. Every time I get the, the privilege to interview an astronaut, I always ask him about the overview effect. And what, what can you describe for us about what it was like to see Earth from outer space?
0: Yeah, I've been around the world uh, 2,650 times, uh, Kevin. And that's, that's the big thing. I think if you and I were floating by the window... And we went around once. You know, it takes about 90 minutes, about an hour and a half. You know, that's probably, you know, a, a commute home, listening to what the traffic lights are like there. Um, Infrastructure. And, but, that, <laughs> but Then you go around the world in that time. And the first time, it's just overwhelming. But, you know, the 10th time, you really start to see the world. And then a the 100th time, you really know where to look. And the world starts Revealing its secrets to you of just how beautiful and ancient and tough it is. And, and, and thousands of times around the world, you really get a sense for how small it is, how common the human experience is, how ancient this planet is. You know, what's four and a half billion even mean? And, and how we fit into that. And, and so I, I think you come back both much better informed as to the, the rareness and and the beauty of our planet. But also, I think most astronauts would agree, you come back very optimistic. This is one tough planet we live on, and life is tough, but also resolve that, you know, we need to do a better job of of being the current caretakers of it. We can't just be willy-nilly burning everything up. You know, we need to think about it and and try and be responsible uh, in in our our decision-making.
3: Do you think, Colonel, that... I will have the opportunity or that other people will have the opportunity to go into space to get to, to, to see. Maybe not. Maybe they can't go around the Earth in 90 minutes, but will, will we get to just have recreational space travel relatively soon?
0: Yeah, I'm on the advisory board to Virgin Galactic, and they're getting really close.
3: Sign um, me up. They just, Sign they just me up.
0: It's still expensive. It's, you know, like, like, uh, air travel was in the 1920s. It's expensive now, but, but, you know, it's, it's the technology's new. And, and Blue Origin, which is a space company, they're trying to bring the price down. So you can just go for a suborbital ride. But remember, later this year, there's a team of four people that are going to go, go around the world for four days. Um, and none of them are NASA or space agency people. One of them is a pilot, but, but he's, he's wealthy. But the four of them are going to go up as, Non NASA non professional astronauts and orbit the world for four days, and that that's a pretty cool new development, and that's happening this year. So so yeah, the opportunity is definitely coming, and we just need the technology to get better. Uh, so that the price can
5: come down,
3: Rick. What do you say we take the show on the road and go hey, into I, space? I, I
5: think the first broadcast of the uh, sound on from outer space. Oh, would be I would pretty love it. cool.
3: I would live for that, Rick Davis. Go ahead. I know you got questions. You know, that was awesome, Curl- by the way. hearing Curl- the Colonel talk about the overview effect. I had goosebumps.
5: Yeah, and I wanted to follow up on that a little bit because um, you know it's 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 something to say that you've been around the world you know twenty six hundred and fifty times, uh, but you you circle it uh, what what fifteen. Sixteen times a day, twenty-four hour oh, cycle, yeah. and and That's I'm right. kind of curious how it impacts you. I mean, I think a jet lag when I fly back from <laughs> LA to New York, and I'm like, wow, it's going to screw me up for a couple of days. I mean, you're doing that every ten minutes, and uh, and so I'm kind of uh, interested, and I think people would like to know. I mean, if if folks are planning on going into space, what kind of effect does that have on your ability to sleep and and function?
0: Yeah, well, that means if you if you think about it, because you're going around the world. Um, that you get a sunrise or a sunset every 46 minutes. So, you know, so that's kind of like a gift, right? Because imagine if you got 16 sunrises a day and, and they happen fast. It's like you're looking at this dark horizon and because you're racing around the world at five miles a second, you go from complete darkness to a full sunrise in about 15 seconds. And it's like someone just poured a rainbow on the edge of the world, just like it just spreads and then bam, up comes the sun. You get 16 of those a day. And so what I would do is set my watch for, you know, 90 minutes and I'd make a mark on the, on the, uh, on the glass there with a little grease pencil or something. And then I'd I'd come floating in and get ready and get the camera ready and take a picture of the moonrise or picture of the sunrise. And then get back to work for an hour and a half (laughs) and then go and try not to miss those. And, you have to live not on a, on a you know, day-night, dark-light cycle. You, you, you just have to choose some time zone. And we sort of split the difference between Mission Control in Houston, Mission Control in Moscow. So we just chose London, England. So we, we go on Greenwich time, same you know, same time as the Queen. But uh, and you just and at nighttime on the station, I would just, you know, pull all the shades closed and turn down the lights. And you just sort of pretend it's, you know, night got- in the morning, turn all the lights on again.
3: I got one more question for you and try to keep it tight because we're we're pressed for time. What advice would you give to a younger version of yourself right before you blasted off into space for the first time in your life?
0: Uh, On my third flight, my dad couldn't come because he was in his 80s. And the advice he gave me is what I give myself. And that is you've earned your right to be there. You've done all the work. You've got the skills. Now is the time to trust yourself.
3: This was a fun interview. All right, I want to be the first journalist in space, Rick. And our producers always joke. And I went home the other week and I said, what did I say? My mom goes, don't tell me you're going to space. Like... (laughs) 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 My <laughs> <laughs> thanks to our team. Thank you to our producer, Matt Shirley, for booking this. And, if, and thank you, Colonel, uh, for, for, for taking the time to to speak with us. Colonel Chris Hatfield, Canadian retired astronaut, engineer, former commander of the International Space Station, former Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot, the first Canadian to walk in space. He flew two space shuttle missions. I'm Kevin Cirilli with Rick Davis. Thanks to our EP, Christine Barata, as well. This is Bloomberg.